Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Afranis, and today I'm on with Scott Konopasik. Scott, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the uh, founder of Mint Measure. Mint Measure is a marketing analytics platform. Um, we do something called bimodal attribution. Um, I come from the ad agency world. I actually spent about a decade um, doing performance marketing um, and media buying at different agencies across the country, working on brands like Jenny Craig, Slack, Campgrounds of America. Um, and so yeah, Mint Measure is really the tool uh, that I wish that I had when I was a media buyer. Um, and so we've been uh, doing this full time for about uh, a year and a half. Um, and yeah, I worked on this you know, off and on um, while I was still at my, my agency job. So you started in your agency job and you transitioned to being a CEO. What was that transition like? <laughs> it was rough, honestly. Um, so I was a media director. Um, I ran a team ran accounts, had client relationships, and uh, was just like building this on the side. Um, I hired a freelance engineer, hired a freelance data analyst, and um, was just kind of like building this on the side. And we launched our alpha in January of 2020. Um, and we actually had a couple of contracts lined up, and then the world came to a grinding halt in March for COVID. And so um, everything just kind of stopped. We put the technology on hold. Um, and my, my last agency actually, um, offered me the opportunity to become the, uh, head of analytics and to, uh, part of, part of the contingency there was that they would buy part of my company that buy 30% of the company. Um, and there's some details around it that like just made it not a good offer, um, not a good path for me. And so, um, I decided to, you know, just do this full time. Um, you know, they kind of forced the choice that I had to um, either kind of take the deal or or get out. Um, and so, in May of 2020, I <laughs> quit my job to do this startup uh, that may or may not work. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of like how I transitioned out of that job. Um, I worked with my my now co-founder, um, and he left his job. Um, last year, and um, he moved out to Utah, uh, which is where I'm currently based. So I moved from New York to, to Salt Lake um, during the pandemic. And so, um, you know, I have, I've had prior experience like managing teams, but, uh, you know, the breadth of what a, a startup CEO does, uh, I don't think I ever could have imagined uh, what it actually entails. And, um, you know, so it's, it's certainly been a learning curve. Um, you know, my, my co-founder has said that I've stepped more into the role as time has gone on. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, responsibility to make choices for other people. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor at Verity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. At Verity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adv e-r-i-t-y dot com slash m-x-a for a free demo and now back to the podcast what were some of the biggest um, skills that you needed to build to become successful in your role um one of the skills that i had gained during um, my agency time that is just so critical is the ability to toggle between tactical details and higher level strategy. Um, it's something that you learn um, at like the supervisor level on the agency side. And so, you know, like today's a really great example. I spent the morning doing uh, some bigger strategic planning and strategic thinking. And then I had um, a client call where I had to get nitty gritty in the weeds, talk about numbers and details. And so just being able to switch contexts like that, um, you know, that's, been a, a really critical skill. Um, I think something else that like you hear a lot and I thought was like a lot of hoo-ha 
<laughs> until I lived it is uh, vision. And because, you know, I have my own personal convictions about why I started this company and the problem that we're solving. And my co-founder, uh, one of my co-founders, he has experienced similar problems. And so he has uh, you know, a similar passion, but as we brought on our uh, first sales hire, as we brought on an engineer, um, we have to communicate this vision and we have to, you know, help them catch the bug, if you will, and um, see the path forward and see what this can become. Um, and that applies also to, you know, investors and fundraising, being able to paint the vision of what this can become. Um, and so it's a skill that I don't think most roles or jobs ever need except for like a startup CEO. It sounds like sales at the end of the day. It's you're selling a vision at the kind of like the highest level. I do so much sales. It's insane. I'm always selling to somebody, right? I'm either selling to my product guy, why we should do this thing, or I'm selling to a prospective customer or I'm selling to a VC or I'm selling the vision to, you know, a potential new hire. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, convincing that has to to happen in my world. And so um, I've, I've read a couple of really good books about sales recently. And uh, you know, it's really kind of growing my my perspective on this and certainly you know, helping me level up my skills. Do you have any um, growth metrics that you can share about the business uh, since it began? We're in the, the phase of product market. And we know that our customers have a problem. We know that our solution solves the problem, um, but how do we talk about this in a repeatable way to agencies, to brands, and uh, you know, help them understand the benefits, help them um, overcome the barriers and the challenges that are you know, potentially keeping them from, from making a sale? So um, we look at... Uh, Kind of all the micro steps that happen from the very first time that we reach out to somebody. So we're going to look at something like an email open rate and a response rate. We're going to then look at of the meetings that we had, was there interest, was there a fit, um, and then how does the the sale progress? Um, you know, we we work with clients of all different shapes and sizes, and so you know sometimes a contract might be twenty thousand dollars a year, sometimes it might be two hundred thousand dollars a year. So, um, you know, as far as like growth metrics, um, I'll, I'll kind of keep those to myself. But um, we, instead of trying to boil the ocean, um, we're trying to optimize every step of the process. Um, and make sure that if we're doing the first step really well, that we optimize the second step. And the, this is actually a performance marketing um, principle. Like you, in performance marketing, you start at the bottom, um, closest to your conversion point, and you optimize everything all the way up. So you're going to optimize your website UX and conversion rate on site, because then for every dollar that you put into the marketing machine, you have that much higher of a conversion rate. And so we're doing that just kind of, our process doesn't start at the end of the sale, it actually starts at the beginning with the outreach and what's working and optimizing every one of those steps. So every time we send an email, we know that we're using all the learnings and KPIs um, that have done well in the past to give us the best opportunity. Um, and so it's just this series of, of micro-optimizations throughout the buyer's journey. Can you share any other strategies around performance marketing that you've learned or maybe implemented that you, you think would be beneficial to listeners? Yeah. So I was actually talking to this client today um, and we we shared a couple of meta insights. So we work across a number of different brands and campaigns and um, we actually are able to see these really interesting trends across advertisers. And there's two major things that happen um, in performance campaigns when uh, the advertiser doesn't have the right insight and isn't you know, frequently optimizing. Um, the first is that the vast majority of users in a campaign will only see one impression, and one impression is almost always less effective than two or three or four impressions. And it's just kind of the nature of um, DSPs and ad platforms, right? If you have an audience of 20 million people and you're going to buy 30 million impressions, the DSP is going to... Uh, optimize for the lowest cost impression. And that usually means that it's going to reach a net new person. 
um, because if you've reached 10,000 people, there's other companies competing for that 10,000 people. So you have to bid more on those 10,000 people to get them to a two frequency, whereas you can probably pay less um, for a net new user. So um, this is a, a macro trend that we see again across like different verticals, different types of campaigns. Most users only see one impression, but the required number of impressions um, is almost always somewhere between like two and eight, maybe two and 10. Um, and then the second macro trend that we see around this that um, is you know, very similar is that very few users see ads across channels before converting or making a purchase. Um, in the data that we have, uh, we're typically seeing somewhere between eight and maybe 20% of users are seeing ads across channels. And cross-channel frequency and cross-channel um, conversions are actually the best way for performance marketers to improve their results. You will oftentimes see data that says like users who are exposed to video and display convert at 1%, whereas users who are exposed to either display or video convert at like 0.1%. So literally a 10x higher response rate. But the number of users reached by both might be 50,000 or 100,000. And the number of users reached by both or by individual channels might be 500,000 or a million. Uh, and so this is typically like in the first like six to eight weeks. And so we'll say, okay, we could either continue to reach more new people with only display or only video, or we can work the people and build frequency with the people who've already been exposed. And so um, taking that, that list of, let's call it a half a million people who've been exposed to video and building frequency with something like display has the the effect of moving people from that 0.1% conversion bucket into that 1% conversion bucket. Very interesting. And I, I want to challenge the um, one, one particular thing, and I'm curious what your response is. Um, recently, I saw a pie chart of the most influential um, things that a marketing organization can do that impact success. Targeting was one of the segments, but it was a fairly small segment. It was close to 10%. And creative was closer to like 30 or 40%. And the expect like the they also measured people what people thought was the most important and they were inverse. So people thought targeting was really important and that creative was less important, but it was actually the opposite. So how do you balance targeting with creative? And is, isn't creative more impactful to uh, marketing success than targeting? Yeah. Uh, so when they're talking about targeting, let's make sure we're, we're all using the same definition. They're talking generally about like behavioral targeting or contextual targeting. So narrowing the audience that you're talking to, um, to go and find those net new users. Um, the example that I gave is uh, technically uh, a form of targeting, but it's less about uh, finding new users based on behavioral qualifications and more about saying, I know that this media mix converts at 10 times better than this channel by itself. So uh, you know, working the leads or the, the users that you've reached. Um, so yeah, I mean, technically it is targeting, uh, but I, I just wanted to draw the difference that from what you're, you're talking about, um, they're just referencing like behavioral contextual. So um, yeah, so you know, when I started in performance marketing, behavioral targeting, besides being like all the rage, was like pretty effective. And you would do some contextual targeting, um, but you know, it did get probably more hype than it deserves. Um, and look, you can reach the right people but if you have a bad message and a bad creative, uh, you know, you're, you're probably not going to hit your KPIs. Um, and so I think over time, people have come to realize that third-party cookies and third-party targeting um, is generally like a coin toss, right? <laughs> like if you're trying to reach men or women and you buy that sort of behavioral segment, like it's it's really kind of 50-50. Um, so uh, 
I think also machine learning has come a long ways for the DSPs where they have uh, the ability now to run a bunch of impressions and um, refine who they target based off of, you know, kind of internal or like, I don't want to call them a black box per se, but like things that we don't see and things that like the machines are going to be able to do better. Um, but creative, you know, is always going to be a key part of the marketing equation. Um, if I'm trying to sell a product online and my creative doesn't show the product very well, then it doesn't matter how good my targeting is, uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to hit my goals. Uh, but the opposite is also true. If I have a beautiful creative that explains why this lip gloss is the best lip gloss in the world, but I'm targeting it to men 18 to 34, like, or I'm reaching men 18 to 34, um, I'm probably also not going to hit my target. So um, I think from a performance marketing standpoint, it's easier for mar performance marketers to focus on targeting because that's within control. Creative is generally not within the performance marketer's control. Um, so I can't how many times I would like be, I'd put together a media plan for a client. They're like focused on sales. And then I get the creative and the creative would be like, learn more. And I'm like, guys, we're, we're trying to sell stuff. Like I need you to put a call to action on here that says like buy now, shop now. Um, and so, you know, my last agency, um, they actually had a really like, specific focus on this and they're a media buying agency but they said we're going to be your creative agency's best friend and during the media planning process we would collaborate with the creative agency to make sure that if we were trying to educate we had a learn more call to action that if we had a sales target that we were you know asking the person to shop now or buy now um, and so i think more often than not you know, performance marketers who are listening to this will probably uh, feel this. Like you put together a media plan and the creative is just given to you and it's kind of thrown over the fence and said, here, here you go, go do the thing. And the creative isn't good or if there's not a system in place for how to optimize that creative, um, it can be really tough for the performance marketer to, to hit their goals. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, they definitely have like a really important synergy to be effective. It's uh, it's almost like a formula. It really is. And unfortunately, you know, creative and like the performance media team, performance marketing team, don't really talk that often. In a perfect world, there would be a, we're going to start with a line at the beginning on what the goals are. Both teams are going to go away. One team's going to develop a performance marketing plan. The other's going to develop creative. They come back together when they're like 70% of the way through the process, kind of check in, make sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. And then when the creative is finally delivered, the campaign launches, there's you know really close alignment on the creative strategy and the acquisition strategy. And then um, throughout the course of a campaign, there are systems and, and checkpoints where you can say, cool, we've been running this creative for six weeks or eight weeks. This version is definitively winning or this version is definitively like not pulling its weight. And then um, being able to send that information back to the creative agency uh, and uh, you know have them make edits or revisions. But I think you know one of the, the big challenges here is that uh, a lot of brands, especially bigger brands, have a creative budget and they go and they sign up with a creative agency and the creative agency is like, cool, here's your creative, you're, you're creative for 12 months. And there's not a uh, budget planned out for creative refreshes or for ongoing creative optimization. Um, and so even when you know there, there is an insight like, hey, this is doing well or this one's doing bad, let's create more uh, assets like these. Oftentimes there are, you know, some limitations that um, you know, maybe weren't planned at the beginning. Scott, I want to ask a question around uh, you, your decision to become an entrepreneur. There's probably a lot of people who, who are curious. They want to take the leap maybe, but they're scared. What ultimately convinced you to make the switch? Um, yeah, so I think there are a couple of different factors. Um, the first is that, uh, I have made the companies that I worked at millions of dollars in profit. And at my last agency job, 
uh, I turned a one-time project into $3 million in annual revenue. And uh, you know, the agency talked to game about, oh, we'll give you a spot bonus. Uh, we want to like, you know, say thanks. And so I went and said, hey, guys, uh, see this thing that I did? Like, it'd be great. And they were like, yeah, mm, no, no, we're, we're kind of tightening the belt. We're not gonna, we're not gonna give you a spot bonus for helping us get this $3 million. And it really was like my work and my relationship with that client that, that did that. And so that is just the latest in a very long series of experiences where I had made somebody else millions of dollars and sure I got my, my paycheck. Uh, but I just kind of said to myself, well, I think it's time to make myself millions of dollars. I think it's time to capture the value that I create and not just give that value away to other people. Um, that was a that was certainly like a, a motivating factor. Um, I think the other thing that like motivated me is uh, I actually got validation for my idea. I had this idea for a couple of years, and um, I was in a room full of like 100 agency people at a conference. I started kind of explaining what this product would do and why I wanted it. And I kind of got some really good feedback. People were like, yeah, yeah, like I need that. Yeah, I have the same problem. Man, yeah, I would use a tool like that. And that was kind of the moment for me to say, okay, I need to give this a try. Like if it works, great. If it doesn't, also fine. And so um, I like hired that freelance engineer and started kind of like moving things along. And the other thing is I started reaching out to um, other ad tech CEOs and I was like, Hey, can I take you to breakfast? Can I grab a coffee? Like, let's meet up. I want to ask you questions about what it's like. Um, and the very best advice that I got uh, was <laughs> this the CEO said, um, you shouldn't be a, you shouldn't start a company. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, you, you shouldn't do it. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm coming to you for advice. He's like, the only reason why you should start a company is if you can't imagine doing anything else. If you will be unhappy doing literally anything else, like you should go and do that other thing before you start a company. And he's like, only if you can't imagine should you go and do this. And, um, you know, I was like kind of taken aback at first and I was like, well, that's some weird advice. Um, but as I've gone on in my CEO journey, like that was probably the best advice. And I, I literally can't see myself doing anything else. You know, it's this confluence of, um, making other people millions and millions of dollars and, you know, not sharing any of the upside, to, um, you know, wanting to, a little bit of autonomy to do things my way. Um, and then having this idea that, you know, people had, had initially validated as interesting or valuable. And so, you know, all these things kind of came together when in the middle of COVID, I had to decide if I wanted to take this, this job or if I wanted to quit. Um, and so, um, yeah, for those who are thinking about it, you probably shouldn't do it. Only if you really can't imagine doing anything else, then you should do it. You can be happy getting a steady paycheck. If you can be happy climbing up in a company, if you can be happy working at a startup that's not your own, you should do that instead. And the reason for that is it just takes so much conviction, so much conviction. Like, you know, there was a point before, so we've only raised like a quarter million dollars um, from angels. We've had enough revenue to, to fund ourselves and, and make some progress. So um, before that moment that we took other people's money, it would have been really easy to quit. And I'm not going to lie. There were a couple of moments when I was like, eh, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of headache. Like, do I really want to be doing this? Like, I could easily go make $150,000 doing, like, just going back to, like, my old type of work. And it came back to like, no, I, I literally would be miserable doing anything that is not this. If I don't, if I don't give this like a full dedicated effort and now I've taken other people's money, there is no going back. doesn't matter if I have a bad day and I'm like, ah, oh, it'd be easier if I didn't do this. Like I have a fiduciary responsibility now to these uh, investors to um, you know, do the, do right by them and, and maximize uh, you know, the, the growth of the company. What kind of, 
uh, advice do you have that you've learned along the way? Um, choose your co-founders very carefully. Uh, I have had the great fortune of having uh, some excellent co-founders. And, and one of the people that we started working with initially uh, as an engineer, you know, he, he wanted to go do other things. Um, and so, you know, my, my co-founder, Alex, he and I have a really great dynamic that either of us by ourselves probably would run the company into the ground. But together, our dynamic gets us to a place where we make the best decisions. So I tend to be very optimistic. I tend to be, um, let's go fast, let's break shit. And he is much more conservative. He's much more cautious. And so, um, you know, he tempers my enthusiasm at times. He's like, hey, Scott, like, we need to think through this a little bit more. What about this? What about that? That, you know, my optimism just wants to, you know, gloss over. And then there are times when um, we're working on something. I'm like, okay, well, like, I understand that more conservative approach. But, like, what about this? And think about this. And if we do this, then it unlocks this. And so we both push and pull and uh, we arrive at solutions and like decisions that are far better than either of us uh, could have could have done by ourselves. So uh, find a good co-founder because that is going to be just so critical in, in the way to like, give a path forward. Where would you recommend meeting a co-founder? Do you go to networking events? Would you recommend getting an MBA? Well, I certainly wouldn't recommend an MBA and the debt that comes with that. If you're going to go get an MBA, you should plan on working at like a, a blue chip company, a Fortune 1000 company and paying off your student debt before you try and start a company. Um, so finding a co-founder is tough, um, to be sure. Um, there are some really great um, communities online. So there's a community that I've been a part of for the last like year and a half called Propel. Um, and it's, you know, made for builders, uh, by builders, and it's a really great community of people who are either interested in starting something, interested in joining a really early stage company or early stage founders who are looking for advice and guidance. And so, um, you know, there, there are communities like that. Um, there are also a couple of like companies that specifically, um, specialize in like matchmaking co-founders um but generally speaking like you know my experience is that uh when you have an idea and, uh, and want to start a business it requires more than just yourself to do it and so um that's how i met my co-founder so uh the first engineer that we hired uh i got a referral from somebody and we worked together and he did really great work for us um and then uh, I spent six months looking for my co-founder, Alex, and he has a very specific skill set that's very hard to find. And so we just started with contract work. I said, all right, well, here's some work. This is what I need. Can you do it? And he did it. And I was like, oh, well, well this is interesting. Oh, so I got him interested in the product and the idea and got him onto some sales calls. And he was like, oh, OK, like there's actually like a real need for this. And then, um, you know, we just figured out what the, the commercials were to bring them on board and, and for an equity capacity. And then uh, my other co-founder, Brandon, um, we engaged with him on like a three-month project. And we, you know, got to know him. We got to know his work style and um, we liked the work that he did. And then we, you know, we're ready to offer him uh, a full-time job. So I think for anybody who's thinking about starting something, just get started and find people who can help you do the first step. And you'll know by working with them if you like them, if they do good work, if the two of you working together is going to be a good thing. You know, it takes two to tango. And so both people are going to have to, you know, like the other enough <laughs> to want to work together. Um, you know, I joke with, with Alex that we're business married. Like, you know, we, we entered into a long-term relationship to build this business together. And um, you have to really like your co-founders. And, you know, the only way to really do that is to, to get into the weeds and to, to start working on stuff. And, you know, if you're trying to talk to somebody about being a co-founder and they are um, 
and they're interested in being a co-founder, but not interested in doing the work, there's something probably off there. Like, you know, I, I would say for the founders, probably the most important thing is to get shit done. And uh, there's a lot of people who just talk and talk and talk and talk, uh, but are slow to get things done or can't keep deadlines or like want to do something absolutely perfect. And so they do nothing or they like, it's incomplete, incomplete, incomplete because it's never going to be perfect. Um, and so, you know, in the first like year that you're working on something, just getting shit done, even if it's 80% of the way complete, even if it's, you know, a rickety thing that like runs, but you know, you have to tighten up a few nuts and bolts every now and then, like it's more important to build, you know, a janky go-kart that can like go around the block than it is to have half of a sports car that can't get out of the driveway. That's a good metaphor. Uh, yeah. So I think other advice for people who are getting started um, is, and this is like super quintessential, but talk to your customers, ask them, why do they like your product? Why don't they like your product? What are they going to uh what's going to make them use your product more and incorporate that into um, the work that you do. You know, the, one of the biggest risks that people have is back of house building product that the front of house uh, either can't sell or, you know, customers on the front of the house asking for things and engineering say, yeah, but we have other priorities. Um, and so, you know, the very early stages is listening to your customers and then building what they're asking for. Speaking of engineering, how do you find a balance in terms of investment in P in engineers versus marketers versus sales and uh, finance and the other functions? Um, that's a really great question. So, um, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain how we do things or how the explicit choices that we've made which from what I can tell from other startup founders that I know is actually a good bit contrarian. So um, we built our initial system. We overhauled it from a rickety go-kart into a moderate sports car that, you know, maintains itself, that doesn't require a ton of work. And we, you know, wash the windshields and we, you know, tighten up any nuts and bolts, but we're not, we're not building a ton of new engineering stuff. And when you talk to early stage founders, the first thing that is like, Oh, we need four engineers. We got to build all these things. Um, and our technology right now is pretty good. Could, are there things that can be done to improve it? Are there new capabilities that we want to add? Absolutely. But it doesn't, if we can't sell the product, if we don't have a repeatable sales motion, and we don't know how to explain the benefits to our prospective customers, then it doesn't matter how many bells and whistles we have, we don't have revenue. And so this is one of the trade-offs that we have made specifically as an early stage company um, that is bootstrapped, right? In a world where we have you know, $2 million VC round, like, yeah, we would hire a bunch of engineers and go build a bunch of new shit. Um, but being forced to make like very stark trade-offs, we said, okay, well, we can either hire somebody who's going to help us figure out product market fit, how to talk to customers, how to sell our product, how to market our product, or we can go build five new backend features. And so we looked at my skill set, my co-founder's skill sets, and we said, yeah, you know what? Somebody to do the front of house sales and marketing stuff, that's the first piece. Um, and so, you know, that's just been an explicit choice on our part to um, make sure that we can sell the product repeatably and bring in new revenue. Um, and then we'll go build all the bells and whistles and extra capability X. You know, in the meantime, it means that there's some more manual processes for us. It means that, you know, something might take us four days instead of one day. But, you know, for us to go from four days to one day on a task would require three months of engineering. Well, that'd be nice right now, but it's not critical right now. Um, and so, you know, I think 
yeah, be, just being bootstrapped has made us like really evaluate every single choice, every single dollar that we spend, and just to make ruthless trade-offs. On the same vein, how do you kind of decide how you're going to partition your time throughout the day? Do you pick what you focus on, or are you more reactive in terms of like what's on fire because there's so much going on? Yeah, I mean, I think the the reality is like a startup founder has to do both, and if a startup founder doesn't protect their time and explicitly plan their time. They'll just get caught up in whatever's on fire, whoever's screaming loudest, or you'll just get distracted on, oh, oops, I spent a half an hour on LinkedIn and then I got caught up in a conversation with my coworker for 45 minutes. And then like, oh, I went to lunch. And like all of a sudden you're at the end of the day and you're like, well, there were these things that I wanted to get done. Where'd my time go? So, um, what we do is every Monday we have a weekly planning um, for the broader team where everyone shares what their top three priorities are for the week. Um, it's an opportunity for um, all of us to say, hey, like, don't forget there's this thing coming up or, hey, like you said you have these three priorities, but like we have this meeting on Thursday, like where does that fit in? And I just make sure that for the week, everyone knows what their priorities are um, and what needs to get done. And that really helps with the cross like cross-department collaboration. And then we have a specific sales um, sales planning meeting every Monday. Um, and then for myself, I typically will block off, you know, anywhere between two and five hours a day for specific tasks. And so um, I try and do that, you know, in the, at the beginning of the week, but every day before I'm done, if there's one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to organize my tasks. What did I get done? What didn't I get done? What came up that I wasn't planning on? And look at my day tomorrow and look at the rest of the week and plan when I'm going to do my work. And I'll usually put blocks on my calendar and say, all right, from 9 to 10, I have to work on this task. I have a meeting from 10 to 11. And then from 11 to 12, I need to get with so-and-so and work on this thing. And the reason why I do that at the end of every day is at the end of every day before you quit, um, you know what you've gotten done. You're in work mode and it's far easier to plan your day tomorrow and like just get that organized. So when you show up in the morning, you're not like, oh man, what was I working on yesterday? Oh, where which task should I like do first today, right? You've done all the decision-making the day before. So you show up and you just, you have your priorities. You, you've planned your schedule, you have your time. And um, it just, it reduces my decision fatigue. I think that's like at the end of the day, one of the biggest reasons why I do it. I just show up, I start working, I have the tasks that I need to do. Um, and I save my decision-making power for things that will inevitably come up throughout the day. I want to ask about your views as a CEO on deciding the narrative that the company takes in situations and defining culture uh, in your organization, kind of leading from the top. And um, how do you view that responsibility? How do you think through it? Um, do you have any examples of that? You know, another one of my raison d'etre and the reason for, for starting a company is uh, I think I grew up in a time when in corporate America and in ad agency culture, there were a lot of really shitty practices and things that I had to do. I had a boss who was like, yeah, dude, I don't fucking care what's going on you have to check your email before you go to bed. And if anything came in between the time you left the office and the time you go to bed, you have to reply. He's like, even if that reply is just seeing this, we'll get to this tomorrow. Like, I think that's like a little bit of an old way of thinking. It's not really like, that's not the type of company that I want to have. That's not the type of culture I want to promote. And so, you know, that example times a hundred different things. And so, you know, the culture that we are creating is very intentional. Um, and part of 
like what is enabling us to do that is us co-founders are all aligned on what this is. And, you know, we sat down about six months ago and we said, cool, like we're starting to grow. We're starting to hire more people. Like how do we think about culture? What, what is this? Are we aligned on the values? How does this show up in our work? How do we hold each other accountable to these things? Um, and so, you know, a CEO is the biggest energy in the room. And uh, something that's like been, uh, been, I don't know, hitting me harder over the last like two months. Um, no matter what, people see the CEO on a different level. Even my co-founders, they're like, yeah, dude, you're the one in charge. Like if you say something, like I'm going to, I'm just going to do it. Or like, I might have a disagreement or I might like want to like share my opinion on it, but like ultimately like you're the one in charge. And that's just a massive responsibility and it's a massive weight. And it means that if I show up on a day or to a meeting and I'm in a bad mood or I'm in a good mood, that's going to be the mood of the room. People look to the CEO for how they should behave, how they should act, if the CEO is combative, people are going to be either submissive to their face and combative elsewhere, or it's going to create a culture of combativeness. If the CEO shows up happy in a good mood, everyone is going to be like, oh, cool. Like we're in a good place. Like things are vibing. The CEO shows up grumpy. Like everyone's going to be like, like, I don't want to piss off the CEO anymore. Or like, so, you know, I, I've learned that lesson many, many times over the last several months that like the day-to-day -day actions of the CEO have more of a profound impact on the overall culture than any culture planning session, than any, you know, our values document or whatever, like, and I think that goes true, that holds true for any of the like, you know, founders and, and leadership that like hiring the right people and making sure that people are value aligned is just so important um, because that's how, if, if that person shows up every day ready to support their team, ready to give their time generously, ready to like act with compassion and teach that's going to set a very different tone than if they're like, yeah, go do your stuff. Ugh, I have to solve this problem. Ugh. Right. Like the attitude of leadership, you know, is the number one determiner of, of culture, especially when you're a small company. That's interesting. What would you say are some other forces that impact culture at a company? Besides executive leadership, um, I think at an early stage company, like it, it really comes down to the example that's being set. Um, if a leader at a small company in particular, let's say under 50 people does a certain behavior, that's going to be accepted into culture. If the CEO swears a bunch, guess what? Everyone's going to be okay swearing at the conference table. If, you never hear a swear word out of, you know, management. Chances are you're never going to hear a swear word out of like everybody else either. Um, I think like one of the things that I, I have heard from a number of people uh, is that you can't just let culture coast. Uh, you can't just plan culture once and then just kind of walk away from it because otherwise it's going to kind of develop into a beast of its own. Um, you know, part of that is, regularly having times to communicate from leadership to the rest of the team to share that vision. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. Here's how it's all going to work. Um, and then another part of that is camaraderie. Um, you know, it, it's a really fundamental principle, but like people are nicer to the people that they know and like, they might not be rude to everybody else, but they're going to be more compassionate, more empathetic. They're going to be more willing to help the people that they really like. And so investing the time to foster that, that camaraderie and that friendship between employees uh, is a really important way to like influence culture. So speaking of, speaking of uh, em employees kind of being together, 
What's your perspective on remote work? Is it as productive as in person? What What's your viewpoint on it? Yeah, um, so we're still a small enough team that we don't have to have everybody work together. Um, so my POV on this is is different than uh, you know some of my co-founders, but basically humans have collaborated and worked together in real life face to face for hundreds of thousands of years. There have been pandemics before and we are going to continue to be animals that collaborate and thrive IRL. Now, I firmly believe that the days of going back into an office five days a week are over. COVID has changed that. Technology has gotten to a place where it's just not necessary. Um, so, you know, when we're at a point that we, you know, need to have people together, um, we're going to have a policy of three days, two to three days in office and two to three days work from home. Um, and I think it's really important to note that this varies wildly by job type. An engineer who like, you know, has their task and has their roadmap, they're probably going to be much more productive and happy working from home four days a week, five days a week. You know, there's probably weeks where that person doesn't need to come into the office. But if that person, if we want to have a culture, right, culture is largely um, IRL, um, but something like a sales role, that probably needs to be IRL uh, three days a week. And so, you know, there's no... One policy doesn't suit an entire company. Um, there are roles that are going to be significantly more productive working by themselves from home. And there are going to be other roles that are more productive IRL. And then every person is going to have their own preference. I might be an extrovert and I might prefer working uh, in an office, but somebody else might dislike having to have social interactions, uh, but they're still great at their job. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this like shakes out over time. I think we are seeing uh, a lot of people, individuals who want some office time and some IRL time. Um, but again, I think the, the days of five days a week in the office are, are gone forever. I wish them well. I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> be remote. I totally agree, by the way. I think, there, I, I think that employees need to get together one way or another. And recently there have been some dinners that uh, our work has organized and they have been such a fantastic way to have fun with the people you work with. And it does make the work more rewarding. Um, it's, you don't want to work with strangers. That's, that's no fun. Right. It means that when Gary comes to you at 4.30 and says, hey, look, man, Alex, I got this thing. I really need a little bit of help. Gary isn't just some faceless schmuck in the back office who you've seen on Slack. No. Oh yeah. Gary's the guy that like we talked about our cocktails and then I, yeah, he's like in the stand-up paddleboard. Like they become a real human and it changes the way that you interact. Maybe the net outcome in both of those scenarios is that you do the work, but one of them you're probably grumpier and more frustrated that this nameless faceless person has asked you for this thing and the other is like yeah you know what gary's a solid guy i know that like he's in a tough spot i'm gonna help him out and that's the essence of culture right like culture is how you treat each other culture is the attitude that you have when you're doing something for your colleagues or for the company and how your attitude then impacts everybody else now that task that you have to go and do if you're, you're slightly frustrated and irked about it because you don't know Gary, then like you might go have another interaction with another team member and they're going to be like, oh, okay, like you're grumpy. Or you might like be in a good mood and be be willing to help Gary out and like your interaction with the next person is, is positive. And so like there are so many like, I don't know, network effects and like uh, impacts of culture and IRL is just irreplaceable. There's there's no way to substitute it. And so, you know, when we have employees who are fully remote and don't live in a place where we have an office, like 
will get them to the office several times a year um, because, you know, we are, we are social beings and um, you know, the impact that that can have on how we treat each other and the culture it creates is, is hard to understate. So I want to go back to the first question or one of the first questions about sales and more specifically client management. Um, what skills are needed to succeed in client management? Um, all right. So I think this one is, is probably not something that uh, you'd hear from a lot of people, but I'm going to say that foresight and pre-planning is probably the most important thing when it comes to managing clients. Um, and it's not just like, you know, I have a crystal ball and I can see all my clients' desires. No, it's, it's being able to manage expectations. Um, what I've learned throughout my career is that setting expectations for somebody is the number one thing that you can do to either have things go really well or really poorly. Uh, in like the performance marketing world, like let's suppose that uh, you have a client and they're like, hey, I want to allocate more budget to this chat to this channel. And you say, okay, cool. And they double their budget. And all of a sudden your CPA triples. The client's going to be frustrated. And it doesn't matter what you say. It's just going to come off as an excuse. Oh, well, the CPA increased because every incremental user it costs more and uh, there's fewer and we have to work harder. And like, it doesn't matter what you say. That client's going to be like, okay, yeah, make your excuses, explain why it's crap. But if you say, hey, uh, actually, like, cool, we can do this. I just want to set your expectation that this is the way that this happens. This is what we can expect to see. We can expect to see CPA deteriorate. And then when it happens, the client might be like, oh, CPA is terrible. I'll be like, yeah, I told you. Remember that email that I said, like, this is going to happen? Like, so, you know, pre-planning and like managing expectations for clients is probably like the, the number one thing that you can do to be successful. And look, it could be about timelines. Hey, client. Uh, thanks for this request. We're working on this. Uh, this should take about five to seven days, um, but I'll follow up with you if something else comes up. Something else comes up. Hey, client, uh, we're on day four. Uh, we're going to need a little bit more time. It's going to be on day eight that we deliver this. That one action to pre-plan and to manage that expectation is the difference between the client being like, excuse me, dude, it's day eight. Where's my deliverable? Versus the client being like, oh, yeah, totally get it. You had this thing come up. Oh, yeah, sure. Totally fine. Yeah, here we go. Right? So I think that's probably like really critical for, for day-to-day success in managing clients. Really appreciate um, all of your insight. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.